Uh, and we know that Jonah kind of ends with a question, which means it's open-ended. It's a, it's a question that only we can answer, those who receive this book inspired by the Spirit. And we just pray you would give us ears to hear tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I read a, an article on the ten worst endings in movie history. Hollywood history, the ten worst movie endings. And I'm not a big movie guy, and I wasn't familiar with most of the movies on this list, but there was one on that list that I knew and fully agreed with. Uh, Rocky Balboa, Rocky Part 6, was on that list as one of the worst endings in movie history. And if you know about that series, it's the greatest series in movie history. Um, there are opinions and then there are facts. That's just a fact. Um, but it didn't end well. Uh, because in this uh, last movie, you've got Rocky who's over the hill and he's fighting the world champion, Mason the Lion Dixon. And at the end of the fight, Rocky knows he's lost. And before they even announce the winner, he leaves the ring. And he makes his way to his locker room and they're chanting the name Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. Uh, and then Mason the Lion Dixon is announced the winner of the fight. And there it ends. The Rocky series ends right there. It's a terrible ending. And I wish they would have consulted me about that ending. At first glance... When you look at the book of Jonah, you may think Jonah has a terrible ending, okay? After all, you look in Jonah chapter 2, and you've got this great confession of God's mercy, God's salvation, even repentance, brokenness that Jonah has over his sin. And then it goes straight into chapter 3 and the greatest awakening in the history of the world. An entire city is converted. And it would have been a good place, I think, uh, from a human point of view, to end Jonah right then and there. But it doesn't end there. Jonah 4... Uh, is a chapter that at face value is quite disappointing. But is it? In fact, I would submit tonight that there's nothing disappointing about Jonah chapter 4. Uh, Jonah 4 is crucial for our conformity to Christ. It is crucial for our understanding the ways and the heart of God. Because Jonah chapter 4 teaches us that there are no graduation ceremonies in the school of sanctification in this life. Okay? No one graduates from sanctification school in this life. In fact, you see in chapter 4 that God is relentlessly pursuing this man even to the end. And He pursues us not because He's just this angry um, you know, tyrant who stands over us. He's pursuing us so that we can better magnify His worth and glory. And guess what? That's what we were created for. So when we live for the purpose for which we were created, we flourish. And so it is good that God pursues us. It is good that God is ever exposing the idols and the sins of the heart. Because in doing that, we deal with them in our brokenness over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn. And we are better able to magnify His glory and to flourish as human beings. But we have to be brought to the end of ourselves. It's a very painful place to be. As we saw last week, the truth will set you free. But first it must make you miserable. And Jonah is miserable as we pick up chapter 4. Uh, we see... In the first three verses here, Jonah's pity party. Notice with me in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What is it referring to? It displeased Jonah. Well, 
There's two things in chapter 3 that displease Jonah. And they're easy to remember. Nineveh's repenting and the Lord's relenting. Those are the two things that displease Jonah. He does not like the fact that Nineveh has repented. And he does not like the fact that God has relented from his judgment. Now, here's the question. Why would a prophet be upset that a people who have listened to him preach be converted? Now, I understand if the people that are listening to him preach fall asleep when he preaches or yawns when he preaches. But the fact that he is upset that these people have repented and been converted, you would think that would make Jonah happy. That's what he does. He's a preacher. He's a prophet. Why is Jonah upset? Well, in my studies, I found about five uh, possibilities for why Jonah is upset. And I think there's some truth in all of these. I think there is a sense in which he's a nationalist, prejudiced, uh, he recognizes that the Ninevites are sinners, and he sees himself as a sinner, but there are sinners, and then there are sinners, okay? Maybe all of that is true. But I think Hugh Martin, in his wonderful commentary, um, gives, I think, the most logical and best argument. Hugh Martin is reminding us there that Jonah is first and foremost a prophet to Israel. Uh, this, this assignment that was given to him to go to the nations is unique, okay? It's a one-of-a-kind uh, assignment. He is first and foremost uh, a prophet to Israel, okay? And Hugh Martin argues that in Jonah's perspective, the salvation of the Ninevites was going to make his ministry back in Israel impossible. Alright? It was going to make it very difficult. Because God's relenting, in Jonah's view, would only confirm Israel in their sin. Alright? That's the argument he makes. And they would say, well, you, you're talking about all these prophets that you claim are not true prophets. Uh, maybe they're right. Maybe you're the one uh, who isn't correct when you say God is bringing judgment on us. Uh, maybe these things aren't going to happen to us. But if Nineveh had been destroyed, that would have confirmed Jonah's ministry to Israel because he was calling as a prophet in Israel, Israel to repentance, and judgment was going to fall. I'm reading a book right now on the first awakening written by Thomas Kidd from Baylor. A remarkable book. And he's talking about how often George Whitfield would go to Charleston, South Carolina. And he would go there because it was a very wealthy city and uh, there was a lot of worldliness there. People dabbling in religion and Christianity, but they were very worldly. Because there were some of the things he called them out for, which I found remarkable, like uh, wearing jewelry. Uh, that may be a little over the top. But he, he, he was um, prophesying that judgment was going to fall on Charleston. And yet he had a lot of naysayers. He had a lot of people pushing him at Whitfield, had a lot of critics. And so in 1740, Charleston experiences this massive citywide fire. And all of George Whitfield's um, proponents, uh, all of those who were supporting George Whitfield, were saying, Ah, that fire in Charleston is going to confirm Jonathan Edwards as a true prophet. And so Hugh Martin... I think, lines up with that when he says, the fact that God was saving these wicked Ninevites was actually, uh, in Jonah's view, going to confirm Israel in their sin. If God does not judge willful sin, and the Ninevites were certainly guilty of that, then Israel would cease to believe that uh, God is going to do what He says He's going to do. That is, bring Judgment. In other words, if Hugh Martin is correct, and I think he is, Jonah 
has a controlling master in his life that is not Yahweh. Okay? There's something else controlling him. And that's why you have the anger that's spilling out of him. Unrighteous anger. Let me give you a quote that we looked at in the first week we uh, looked at Jonah. Uh, Ian Dugwit, I think it's um, appropriate here again. He says, as long as we get what we want and our idol is smiling upon us, it is easy for us to be oblivious to the power our idol has gained over us. Something secondary has taken God's place at the center of our lives, and we may never even realize there's a problem. As long as we're able to provide the daily sacrifices that our hungry idols require, they smile on us and they bless us and we go our merry way. But when we are unable to make the payments they demand, things turn nasty. When we're no longer healthy or wealthy, then our idols start to curse us. And we experience a range of negative emotions such as fear and anger and despair. In the strength of those negative emotions, we discover the true nature of our idols and the depth of their hold on us. In God's grace, a Black Monday meltdown on our internal stock market may be the means He chooses to use to open our eyes to what's going on in our hearts. Tracing back, and this is it, this is a profound statement. Tracing back negative emotions, and Jonah has negative emotions. He is angry. He has unrighteous anger. Tracing back negative emotions is one of the surest ways to uncover the identity of your idol. Those negative emotions thereby become messengers from God, enabling you to identify your idols a necessary prerequisite for turning from them. So God has to expose those idols. And when He exposes them in a true believer's heart, we begin to mourn over them. Okay? That's the evidence of, a, of saving faith. Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin. We mourn over our idols. And out of that brokenness, out of that grief over our sin, comes confession. And out of confession comes repentance. And we need to understand here that whatever we treasure most is what we truly worship. All of us treasure something ultimately. And what we treasure most is what we worship. And what we worship depends on what we fear the most. Now let me give you an example of that. If you fear loneliness, there are some people that's their greatest fear. If you fear loneliness, then you're going to worship human relationships. Uh, you'll become codependent. In fact, I saw a, a new phobia this week. Nomophobia. Do you know what nomophobia is? It's the fear of not having cell service. That's a new phobia that's arisen in our culture. So if you have nomophobia, it's going to show itself when you don't have cell service or you don't have access to your cell or your cell phone has died, you're going to get really irritated and antsy about that. So if you have, uh, you, if you fear loneliness, you, you, it may evidence itself in worshiping relationships. Or if you, um, if you worship, if you fear uh, not being accepted, okay? If you, if you fear uh, not being esteemed, you may worship material possessions, all right? Uh, you may mater uh, worship those kinds of things that you think will get you accepted and esteemed. You may, you may uh, worship your appearance, okay? Um, or if you fear insignificance, all right? There's people who fear insignificance. I think men struggle with this more than women. But if you fear insignificance, you may worship your career. You may worship your degrees, your, your education. Okay? There's all, all of us worship something ultimately. Something, there is something that we treasure most. And we can usually connect what our fears are to that. In other words, we attribute something ultimate uh, to someone or something that we think is going to give our life meaning. And I don't think this is sunk in for Jonah. Um, 
He's depended, what it appears to be, on his national reputation as a prophet. Alright? And uh, he, he's clearly not anchored in the Lord here. He's, uh, he's anchored in his pedigree. And so to experience God's rescue, alright? And that's what God's doing. He's always at work rescuing his people. Uh, Jonah has to identify the idols that he worships. And God is good at exposing them. God is good at exposing the idols. And so he's exposing them to Jonah. And Jonah reminds us that there's no unbroken ascent from unbelief to faith, okay? Uh, there's fits and starts, there's steps forwards, there's steps back. Uh, you think after you've read Jonah 2 that, that Jonah is fully sanctified. No, there has been some areas of his life that uh, God has brought deliverance in. Now God is at work exposing other areas in, that uh, need to be addressed, that he needs to die to. Now, lest we think there's been no progress in Jonah's life, um, we need to look at verse 2. Uh, because instead of fleeing from the presence of the Lord, that's what we saw in chapter 1, notice what Jonah does in his anger. Verse 2, he says, And he prayed to the Lord. I mean, I think this is quite telling. He prays to the Lord. Again, Hugh Martin, um, agitated and alarmed, he fled from the Lord originally. Okay? When God brought the command to, to go to Nineveh, he fled from the Lord originally. Now agitated and alarmed, he flees to the Lord. So there's been growth. There's been maturity here. He does not seek a refuge from God. He makes God his refuge. Uh, but we're about to hear now, straight from the horse's mouth, why he is agitated. And it's found in verse 2. It says he, he prayed to the Lord. And he said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is one of the most important phrases in the Old Testament. I don't know how many times it's found. You see it numerous times in the Old Testament. You see it throughout the Psalms. You see it throughout the Prophets. But this is a quotation from Exodus 34. If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, I want you to see this. This is the first time we see this language. And in Exodus 33, Moses had asked God, after God had delivered them, he said, show me your ways and show me your glory. That's the twofold request that, uh, that Moses gives to God. Show me your ways and show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, God responds to Moses' request. And notice in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Interestingly, uh, in Jonah chapter 4, this is the first and the only time this passage is applied to Gentiles. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, this text is applied to the covenant people, the Israelites. And this shows that Jonah's real problem is that he has grace amnesia. Okay? He's gotten over and forgotten God's mercy to him. And when you have grace amnesia, that's going to lead to identity amnesia. And when you lose sight of who you are in the living God, you're going to have an, uh, an identity replacement. We're always going to replace uh, our identity with God when we have identity amnesia. Identity amnesia stems from grace amnesia. Yes, Jonah is saved. Jonah is a believer. He's a, he's a true believer. But he needs to be saved. 
Now, what does that mean? Because in Southern Baptist life, we like to say, use the phrase, once saved, always saved. And we certainly believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. But it's not the whole story. It, it, really, a better story is once saved, always being saved. One day will be saved. Um, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's thinking in terms of rescue. God is rescuing us. And there are three things He's going to rescue us from as believers. The first kind of rescue is your one-time deliverance from the penalty of sin. You will only be rescued once from that. Okay? And so when you trust in Jesus, and you trust in what Jesus did for sinners, in taking the wrath and the anger and judgment of God um, in our place, you are delivered one time, one time alone, from the penalty of sin. Alright? But there's a second aspect of this salvation, of this deliverance. And that is, we are liberated. This is an ongoing liberation from the power of sin. And so you are saved one time from the penalty of sin. You're going to be, you are now presently as a believer being liberated from the uh, power of sin, which will go on for the rest of your life. And then thirdly, one day you will be freed fully from the presence of sin in glory. All right? If you're not a believer, you need all three of those deliverances. If you're a believer, you've experienced the first of those three. You've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But the evidence that you're delivered from the penalty of sin is that now you are being delivered, freed, liberated from the power of sin and will one day be liberated from the presence of sin. So it's penalty, power, and presence. God is a delivering, God is a rescuing, God is a saving God. John is fighting that. We fight that too. When you fight what God's doing in your life as a believer, unbelievers are not the most miserable people on earth. They don't have God in their lives, okay? The most miserable people in life are believers who are fighting God's work of sanctification in their lives. That's where Jonah is. And as a result, he feels despondency and he feels despair. He plays the victim. Notice with me in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Oh, poor Jonah. Uh, victim that he is. For it is better for me to live or to die than to live. You ever felt that way? Have a pity party? Just, I'm ready to check out. Okay? God's not impressed with that, by the way. He's not impressed. In fact, it may be the reason you are miserable is because God's hand is on you. And sometimes when we fight Him and resist Him, His grace is very painful. But it's very evident that He loves you. And just like with your children, you're not going to allow your children to stay in a state of rebellion. God is pursuing you. He is jealously pursuing you, as James chapter 4 tells us. And so, that's where Jonah is. And now, what God is going to do, out of this pity party, He's going to give Jonah the counseling session of the ages. Alright? Jonah is about to put, or God is about to put Jonah on the couch for a counseling session. And it's going to be a very insightful but painful counseling session. So verses 4 to 11 is the Lord's counseling session. Notice with me in verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now he's going to ask Jonah three questions. Have you ever heard of the Socratic method? Socrates came up with this teaching method where he teaches by asking questions. Well, God uh, employed this method long before uh, Socrates. Uh, even in the garden, he asked Adam, where are you? Okay, and you see the questions uh, throughout the Bible. God comes to his people asking questions, not so that he can learn something, so that we can learn something. And this is the first of three questions. And Jonah's response is to leave the city. He does not like the question. 
Uh, this today we had a baseball game and uh, we finished our season. And yes, it's been 2012 since we lost a game. Um, uh, we and we're very proud of that. But uh, one of our boys was not hustling. Not my boys, but one of the players on the team and and the uh, coach yelled across the field. He said, "What were you thinking?" And the boy wouldn't even look at him. He just looked. Now he did not like the question the coach was asking. Jonah does not like the the question that God is asking. So notice how he responds. Verse five. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade in Mesopotamia. This would have been wicked heat. Okay. Um, Till he should see what become of the city. Jonah's not giving up on God. He's hoping that God's going to pour out his judgment on the Ninevites after Jonah has his pity party. You know? He's like a kid. Uh, a kid doesn't get his way, so he pouts until the parent gives in. That's terrible parenting. Okay? I can tell you this God doesn't do that. God was not impressed with his pouting. Uh, and so Jonah goes out of the city and he's hoping that God is going to pour out uh, his judgment on these people. And so you notice in verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. We've already seen this verb appoint. What did he appoint last time? He appointed a great... You, you think God's in charge? You think God is sovereign? Uh, you know what the word sovereign, we use that word a lot. That just means he's in control. That means he stands over everything, okay? Um, he appoints, verse 6, a plant. And he made it to come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You know what Jonah's thinking? He has to be thinking this. My pouting session worked. Alright? God's giving in. Alright? That has to be what he's thinking. Now, he, God has already appointed the fish, and now he's appointed a plant, and both acts were acts of grace. The, the fish that he appointed was a painful grace, and here... We have a comfortable grace. He is appointing a plant to cover Jonah, to shade Jonah in the heat. Now what's interesting here, and the English does not pick it up. If you see in verse 6, it says, It came over him to shade him, to save him from his discomfort. Now that word, discomfort, is the same word, and I wish the English would pick this up, it's the same word that's found in chapter 1, verse 2. Look back in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come, upon, has come up before me. That's the same word that's used for discomfort in chapter 4. I believe it's intentional. And then if you look in chapter 3, when God relents, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. There's the word that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. And so God has appointed this plant um, to protect Jonah from disaster, from discomfort, from his evil in the sense of just his, his uncomfortable circumstances. And so, I think there's a point being made. Just as God protected Jonah, delivered Jonah from the discomfort through the plant, God also showed the same protection to Nineveh through their repentance. angry over Nineveh's deliverance. Alright? Now that's a very important point which tells us that 
God isn't through with Jonah. He's using a variety of tactics, a variety of circumstances to demonstrate to Jonah his sin. He does the same thing with us. You go through difficult circumstances, tests and trying. It's not because God's absent. It's because he's very present. He is more concerned with your God-likeness than he is your present temporal happiness. Okay? Jonah's exceedingly glad, and that's irrelevant to God. Okay? That really is irrelevant to God. He wants Jonah to be conformed to his likeness. He wants Jonah to magnify his worth because he knows, being the wise God that he is, and the fact that he has created us as the image of God, we will really and truly only flourish when we are magnifying his worth, magnifying his glory. Now notice verse 7. It says, he's appointed the plant. And then verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's the third time that word's used, he appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. <laughs> when the sun rose, God appointed, there's the fourth time that verb is used, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Second time he said that. And said, this is better for me to die than to live. Now this may sound harsh. But actually it's loving. Because God disciplines. And this is what this is. This is not judgment on Jonah. This is discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines His sons. He disciplines those He loves. I'm coaching this baseball team. And, you know, uh, Jim Hamilton and I, he's a colleague of mine at the seminary. He's the good cop and I'm the bad cop, okay? Um, and, and I'm kind of intense with the players, all right? But I'm really intense with my sons. And it's not because I'm short-tempered. I never lose my temper out there. I'm just pursuing them, okay? So I'm parenting them out on the baseball field when I'm just a coach to the other players. I'm a coach and a parent on that baseball field with my sons. And so there's a unique kind of discipline I give them that I don't give the other children. Now, some knucklehead in the stands may think, those, those two young boys right there, he doesn't like those two young boys. He seems to like everybody else more than he likes these two young... Actually, it's just the opposite. I love my sons. I love my sons so much more than I love the other children on the team. So I am pursuing them relentlessly, parroting them. I'm acting as a father to them even as I'm acting as a coach. And that's what God is doing. And Jonah is continuing to resist the discipline of God. His anger over this wilted plant shows that he assumes that God is obligated to offer him a comfortable life. Which is not unlike our view of God that is prevalent in the West. Alright, the prosperity movement, the health, wealth, and prosperity. If I'll just have enough faith, uh, I, I'll be healthy. I'm going to have money in the bank. Or treating God like He's some kind of concierge or a butler that you call for an, a, a more soft pillow. Uh, that, that's the way. And then when God doesn't deliver, we just get distasteful. That's the way. That's the Jonah syndrome. Again, God is using circumstances in Jonah's life to expose his idols. Now you say, well, the word idol is not here. But let me tell you, the first commandment, the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's a reason that's the first commandment. Every sin we commit can be traced back to having another God that is before you that is not the living God. Every sin we commit can be traced back to idolatry. That's why Jeremiah said, uh, or God says through Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, that's idolatry, and they have honed for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. So every sin we commit, at that moment, we have a functional God who is not Yahweh. Okay? And that's what God is doing. Notice in verse 9, 
But God said to Jonah, Do you do well? There's the second question. To be angry for the plant? You have to appreciate Jonah's honesty. He said, Yes, <laughs> I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. I'm going to have my pity party and you're going to give in to me. If I yell and scream and suck my thumb long enough, you're going to give in to me. And God uses a lesser to greater argument here. Um, essentially, Jonah at this point is just unwilling to allow God to transform his anger to compassion. He's unwilling for God to transform his pity for plants into pity for people. And instead of flourishing, he wants to die. That's a believer who has lost sight of his purpose. And Jonah reminds us, we don't really need reminding, all we have to do is just examine our own lives, that a self-absorbed believer becomes increasingly trivial and petty. All right? Um, at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw he wanted to die because he didn't like God's grace on the Ninevites. And now he wants to die because he deserves God's grace on himself. All right? And this is a reminder that when we are consumed by our own problems, our spiritual life withers like that plant. Have you noticed that... The people that are the most miserable around you are the most self-centered people. All right? And just the opposite, the people who um, essentially live out of themselves are the most joyful people. And that's one of the reasons why body life is so important. Um, church life. Um, because church life gets you out of yourself. All right? That's why you can't live the Christian life unless you're immersed in body life. I'm not talking about just church attendance. I'm talking about body life where you are forced out of your self-centered existence and you are forced to love people that you would not have hung out with in high school. Okay? People that are different than you. People that have different backgrounds than you. Uh, they come from a different part of the country. They may look different than you. They may have a different uh, socioeconomic um, you know, background than you. A different education than you. They may have different beliefs than you. That's why church life is important. One of many reasons is it gets us out of ourselves. You see, unless our hearts are consumed, unless they're centered on um, causes and glories greater than us, we will not flourish as human beings because we were created that way. We were created to glorify God by loving, okay? Loving God and loving our neighbor. And that's why Jonah is so miserable. And so Jonah is essentially saying, how can I live in a world that would allow my little plant to die? All right? The self-centeredness. And that Jonah syndrome permeates our hearts. As I said last week on Sunday morning, we look in the Scriptures, we see a mirror. So when we see Jonah, there's a reason Jonah was given to Israel, the book of Jonah, and there's a reason that Jonah was put in the canon. Or it is a part of the canon. It was recognized as, as canonical. It's because when we see Jonah, we see ourselves. And so in verse 10... Uh, God's point is that the way out of this self-centered misery is to elevate our affections and our perspective, okay? To elevate it, uh, to center on His redemptive plan. Notice verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left. That is, they are ignorant to the ways of God. There's ignorance in them due to the hardening of their hearts, as Paul would say later in Ephesians 4. And also, much cattle. And so the Lord here reminds Jonah of the pity that he felt for the withered plant, motivated, ironically, by Jonah's, uh, or the benefit that this plant brought to Jonah. Furthermore, in the scheme of things, this plant was insignificant. It was birthed and died within a 24-hour period. It had very little significance. And then in verse 11 here, God asked Jonah his third question, which shows us uh, the central question of the book, when he says, should I not have pity upon Nineveh? The central question of the book is not, what is Jonah like? Though that's an important question. The central question of the book, as we close this out, is who is God? And what is He like? And it's in this increasing awareness and illumination and understanding of who God is that we begin to progressively embed our dead-end stories. And that's what we are. Our lives are dead-end if they're not embedded in God's redemptive, or His redemptive story, okay? As we come to a deeper awareness of who God is, we begin to embed our dead-end stories into the story of redemption so that we live with a God story mentality. That's what he's teaching Jonah. And God's concern for the animals. I, I just... It's interesting that this great book ends with this mercy for cattle. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, later on, Paul will write in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, that the mystery revealed to him is God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. All things in heaven and on earth. Now, what does that mean? That means animate and inanimate creation. To sum up means to bring back to the main point. God's purpose in Jesus Christ is to bring back creation. Animals, the inanimate creation, and the image of God, humanity, back to the main point for which it was created. God's salvation plan is cosmic in scope. It's universal in scope. He is going to restore the curse. He's going to remove the curse on the earth. And that's why I believe he ends this question or ends this book with those words. Of course, God revealing these things to Jonah demonstrate as well, not only his concern for the world, but his concern for Jonah. Okay? That's when God, when God reveals things to us, it's because He loves us. And so there's a great concern here for Jonah. Because the most joyful people on earth are those people whose passions match God's passions. Alright? We're the image of God. It only stands to reason that when we function and we are imitators of God, as Ephesians 5 says... When our passions and our zeal matches God's passions and His zeal, that's when we flourish best. When we live in opposition to that, we malfunction. You may have everything the world has to offer, and it will not be enough. That's what Ecclesiastes is going to teach us. But this is also a soul-crushing critique of Jonah. And if we're honest, a soul-crushing critique of of the spiritual condition that we often uh, show. Because it raises an issue for all of us. Could the same be said of us? Jonah cared more about this plant that made him comfortable than he did, than he did God's mission. Do we care more for our material things? Do we care more for... Uh, those things that make us comfortable, all right, financial security, material possessions, entertainments, do we care more about those things than we do God's salvation mission to the world? Now, that's a hard question. And I thank God has even asked that question. We've got 18 people on mission. 
But the answer to that question would seem to indicate, yes, we do. Because the stats are quite telling. When you consider, think about it, the modern missionary movement didn't begin for 200 years. It was 200 years ago the modern missionary movement began. What was the church doing for the first 1,800 years? Uh, I think they were displaying a Jonah syndrome with certain beautiful exceptions. But the, the missionary movement did not begin until about 200 years ago. But the stats tell us, I mean, the average church, the average mem uh, church member in an evangelical church tithes, it's not even a tithe, a tithe is legitimately 10%, gives 2% of their uh, income. All right, 2%. Do you know what the Mormons give? 7%. The Mormons have more of a sense of mission than evangelicals. And they are uh, missionaries for a false god. All right? And the reason for that has to be, with I'm sure exceptions, is that we care more about that little plant that keeps us comfortable than we do God's purposes for the world. So I, I, th that's why this book is so important for us. And what's interesting as well, there's only two books in the Bible that end with a question. This particular book ends with a question. Should I not pity Nineveh? And the book of Nahum. Alright? So Jonah and Nahum are the only two books that end with a question. So, why does it end with a question? Because the answer is open-ended. It's intentional that this book end with a question. Because God wants the answer to be open-ended. Did Jonah take the lessons God was teaching him in his counseling session to heart? Well, the text doesn't say. I think he did. Because I think he wrote Jonah. I think Jonah wrote Jonah because he took it to heart and he is displaying this, the Jonah syndrome that is prevalent with God's people. But I do think that the question, or the book ending with a question, is intentional. We must write the final paragraph. Alright? We must write it individually. And I think we are called to write it corporately. And the question is, should I not pity Nineveh? Let's fill in the blank. Should I not pity the nations? Should I not pity Louisville? Should I not pity Fisherville? Okay? Because I think what you have here is two different perspectives. And we'll come to that in just a moment. One perspective is a missional perspective. And one is a tribal perspective. Um... Jonah, this book, is inviting us to, to note the stark contrast between a missional mentality and a tribal mentality. What is a tribal mentality? A church with a tribal mentality is a self-preserving entity. Okay? It's just trying to, to self-preserve. Um, the highest value for a tribal church isn't self-sacrificed so that the lost can be saved, it's self-preservation. And God's mentality is obviously missional. But here's the rub. We're born with a tribal mentality. We are. That, that's, that's the sin nature. We are, each one of us have, by nature, a tribal mentality, one of self-preservation, self-centeredness. And the benefit of this book is that it exposes the idol of self-preservation. The, the idol of self. Now I want you to think about this as we close. The, God's reputation in Nineveh. Alright? God's reputation in Nineveh had required Jonah to compromise his own reputation. So that Nineveh could be saved. He's going to compromise his own reputation back in Israel. Alright? These people are evil and wicked. They are hated. In a few years, they're going to come in and just destroy Israel. Okay? God's reputation in uh, Nineveh required Jonah 
to lay aside his own reputation for the salvation of these Gentile sinners. Jonah did that unwillingly. But the one in whom he points, the greater Jonah, did it willingly. Paul will later write in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you. Why does he have to say it? Because we're more like Jonah than we are Jesus. Let this mind being in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it uh, uh, equality to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of the death of the cross. And as John Piper has has said before, the cross is not only a past place of objective substitution. It is a present place of subjective execution. The cross is not just a past place of objective substitution. It is that. But it's more. It's also the present place of subjective execution. What does he mean by that? The gospel isn't simply a set of propositions that I believe in order to escape hell. Okay? It's also a reality that I must daily embrace in order that I might be freed, liberated from myself, from my idols, and my sin. And so I think the ending of Jonah here is leading us to compare God's heart, Yahweh's heart, with our own. That is, the Jonah-like heart that we, we have, uh, heart for ourselves. God's heart is for a multitude of people uh, whom He created that if they do not repent, will spend eternity in judgment. Jonah is calling us to lay aside comforts and, and pleasures and preferences, get out of our tribal mentalities so that we live with a God story mentality for the sake of the nations. For the sake of God's name, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this book. It's not always easy to interpret, but we pray that it's ministered to your people. We pray that you have taught us. We thank you that though we do display a Jonah syndrome mentality, so often in our lives we have a Redeemer, the greater Jonah. Uh, Through his own judgment, through his own resurrection, covers us, even when we sin, even when we display the idols of Jonah. Thank you for that covering. Thank you for forgiveness. But Lord, we pray that that grace that that we have experienced uh, would transform us, that we may love like our Lord Jesus loves.